Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about venture capital, where investors and founders alike can learn how VCs make decisions and reach conviction. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. George Harrison joins us today from Palo Alto. He is founder and co-CEO of Shift, a leading end-to-end auto e-commerce platform transforming the used car industry. Prior to founding Shift, he was co-founder of Taxi Magic, now known as Curb. He also worked with Google and the Boston Consulting Group. George, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you. So, you know, you've got a you've got a great story, a great background. Can you kind of sum it up for us and give us your kind of quick path to uh, to technology and founding? You know, these two companies. Totally, I never thought I'd be doing technology founding. Honestly, it was not my plan. At all. Uh, I studied politics in college and I thought I was going to be in politics for most of my life. Um, but uh, I uh, met a really awesome guy named Tim De- Tom DePasquale, who is a founder on the East Coast, had started a bunch of companies and uh, through him uh, got really interested in starting a company. Uh, and in 2007, uh, Toby Russell and Tom and I and a bunch of other people started Tax Magic which was a really uh, incredible experience. You know, in some ways, actually now, a lot of what I do is very um, similar to politics because it's so much about motivating people and uh, making sense of kind of tough uh, decisions and making those decisions, but I never would have made that connection uh, back in the day. After Taxi Magic, I moved to Google. Um, Taxi Magic was a really incredible experience. We kind of learned a ton. Um, the business was quite interesting, but obviously made a ton of mistakes along the way, given that there is now Uber and Lyft, which should not have existed had had we won. Uh, and then um, after uh, Taxi Magic, I went to Google. Uh, I, my green card was actually rejected, so I needed to go to a big company to uh, stay legally in the U.S. Uh, and uh, was able to do that while also learning a ton of great things uh, at Google. And eventually, after that, you know, I knew I was going to start another company. Um, this one was top of mind for a long time. I spent a ton of time talking to people in the automotive industry to learn more about whether it made sense or not. And in 2013, um, started working on this full time. That's great. So what were the, the notable issues uh, with, with Taxi Magic? What did you guys mess? Well, I think the product uh, itself in the beginning was not exactly what the consumer wanted. We had a thesis that uh, the business traveler would book a taxi right around when they were booking a flight or a hotel as well. It turns out people book, you know, travel travel like hotel and air really far in advance of their actual travel but then don't really want to do any kind of ground transportation until the minute they need to take it. Uh, So our initial thesis was, hey, work with online travel agencies that do business travel bookings, work with a company called Concur, which was kind of the dominant player in that space to get a lot of customers, but that actually wasn't really working very well. Uh, On the other hand, the consumer side of things, like consumers being able to use the product worked really, really well. But uh, our model initially was very much on, hey, every time somebody uses our product, they need to pay for it. And and that doesn't really work with a a consumer. Uh, Consumers, I think, would have wanted a more freemium model 
where they initially got something for free or for very low cost and then over time started to pay for it. Um, and, uh, you know, we made a mistake in not transitioning to a freemium model uh, a lot sooner. Uh, so that was one really big mistake. The second big mistake was to rely on the taxi cab companies uh, to provide the service for us. Uh, if you think of Uber, if you think of Lyft, they have a full stack offering, right? They, they control the experience end to end from the driver on to um, the, the app. Uh, actually, that's why they have such a big issue in places like California in terms of uh, should they be employees or not? Because oh, although they, they do have so in much early data. days, right? With the black no, they cars? always have. No, even in black, with black cars, they still had a ton of control over the experience, right? Because they like the the driver would be using an an app from Uber right. to book at to get the bookings. We relied on the dispatch, the dispatch. The cab companies, right? And kind of gave the cab company a lot more control. And the result was that the experience was not as good as it should have been, right, for the consumer, because the um, the taxi driver wasn't in any way incentivized to really help uh, our customer. Um, and if they saw somebody on the road to kind of pick up, they would pick up that customer rather than go to our customer. And and so this dependency on cab companies was kind of wrong. In in many ways, we probably could have gotten around it over time, but uh, you know by then it was too late because uh, we had built so many things that were reliant on the cab company versus not. Uh, some of this came from the fact that we had people from the cab industry on our board. Um, they were all kind of like, why would you ever want to be in the operations business? Uh, let the cab companies handle that. You provide the software, which at a theoretical level made sense, but turns out what's really valuable is a full stack product, uh, which obviously is you know very different from a software only business. Yes. Uh, much more what we've built at Shift now, but kind of back then I did not really know the distinction between the two. So I, I came across something, this is years, probably a couple of years ago, I read something on this about how um, I think it was Bill Gurley that connected with you guys early on in your journey. And if memory serves, forgive me if I'm misremembering this, but if memory serves, he even suggested potentially changing the model. Is that accurate? Yeah, he, he did. Yeah. So um, Adam um, Adam Dell, um, who is the, the brother of the more famous Dell, actually was using our product a lot in um, New York. And then he told Bill Gurley about our product. Uh, and from there, uh, Gurley became really interested. It kind of fit, fit into the thesis of Gurley's investments where he had done Open Door. Um, and this was a similar product to Open Door, except for ground transportation versus restaurants. And so he really liked the product and um, you know, became very engaged. Uh, I mean, I actually had a, this like totally surreal experience because I was really young at this point. I didn't really have a lot of experiences like this where he was sitting on my desk like, looking at my spreadsheet in terms of where the traffic was really high and where it was low and, you know, where should we focus our business, et cetera. Anyway, so he um, really did push us that we should become more of a consumer uh, product rather than a SaaS product for businesses. Uh, and I think he was 100% right. Uh, and that was very much where my mind was, where Toby's mind was, but the rest of the, the, the executive team and, and in particular the board was not quite there. Um, because they had so much kind of experience in SaaS only businesses and enterprise businesses and wanted to move more in that direction. Uh, and so um, we never end up, you know, taking money from Gurley, which was obviously uh, a huge mistake uh, in many ways and, you know, probably cost all of us uh, many uh, tens of millions or hundreds of millions and maybe in some cases billions of dollars. Yeah. So your model was uh, the precursor for Uber. <laughs> He's looking through your data and that's... Uh... Ultimately, yeah, I think eventually, like once I was no longer at Taxi Magic, but Uber kind of was launching things. I'm like, yep, this is sort of very connected to what we talked about doing or we're actually doing a Taxi Magic, right? So there was a lot of similarities um, in the early days of Uber in terms of what they did. Frankly, like everyone gives Uber the credit for inventing something new. In reality, it was Lyft that invented something totally new, right? right. Lyft was the one who came up with the notion of, hey, let me put a random car 
totally random driver, not in any way licensed, right? Um, be picking up consumers and call that not to be a taxi service. Yep. Uh, and initially they wouldn't even charge you for that. You had to do a donation for it to work. Um, that was the true innovation in the space. Uber just was very smart and kind of followed that as quickly as possible. And since it had so much presence in so many markets with black cars already, it was able to grow faster than Lyft. But in practice, Lyft was the true innovator. And it was, um, it was Uber, Zimride, right? Or? Uh, it, well, Zimride was different. Zimride actually was before Lyft and it was a different business. Oh, it was a different um, business. We actually, yeah, we actually talked to them about stuff uh, early days. Uh, Zimride was an idea where like if you were driving from say, uh, LA to San Francisco, they would hook you up with somebody along the way to ride with you um, as a way to to share in the trip. Got it. Okay. I was thinking that was sidecar, but maybe I've got my things mixed up. Cool. So um, yeah, I want to talk about Shift. Um, what ended up happening with, with Taxi Magic though? Did that end up- So Taxi Magic was renamed as Curb eventually because uh, yep. the feeling was there was a better brand for them. This is after I was no longer there. Um, and eventually it sold to Verifone. Uh, it's still around. So in a lot of cities in New York, uh, for example, or Las Vegas, you can actually still use it uh, in in cab uh, cab companies, right? Like you can bo- use a, a curb app on your phone to book a cab, and you can use a curb um, app to pay for a cab as well. So it's still there, um, which is you know in some ways obviously awesome because it's awesome to have a company be still around. Um, obviously, it's not a dominant player, and the taxi industry is really suffering. So it works best in in markets where the cab industry is a little bit stronger because of the regulatory environment. So that's why New York and Vegas are kind of better for it. Um, but it's still around uh, and it's still operating. So George, now you're addressing one of the things that have, has been one of the more frustrating experiences in my life. It's It's been some time since I've sold a car uh, or bought a used car, but uh, what is Shift? Tell us tell us what you're doing with Shift. Yeah, Shift is a marketplace for buying and selling cars. So if you have a car to sell, you come to shift.com, you submit your car information to us. We then price that car for you. And if you want to work with us, we'll take the car away and you'll never see it again. Uh, and then on the flip side, if you want to buy a car, you come to shift.com, find the car that you want. Uh, and then you can either buy the car sight unseen and have it be shipped to you, or you can book a test drive and the car will be brought to you to try out first um, in, in the markets where we have operations. Uh, and those are primarily markets on the West Coast. Um, and so that's kind of the, the broad product. In between those two transactions, right, between somebody selling us a car or buying a car from us, um, we actually um, recondition every car we sell. Uh, so every car goes through a certain amount of uh, work to make sure that it's in really good condition. So it is in, in many ways the exact opposite of the taxi magic model, which was to try to not be very operational at all. Shift is very operational and owns the entire consumer experience end to end. Got it. And how are you guys different than Carvana? So Carvana is a great company. There's another company called Vroom uh, in this space as well. Um, our model differs in in kind of two big ways from uh, Carvana and Room from the consumer experience perspective. Uh, so number one, um, we bring the test drive to you. Uh, so we, uh, in, in the markets where we have operations and, you know, there's a place like LA, uh, San Diego, Sacramento, Los Angeles, um, San Francisco, Portland, uh, et cetera, you can book a car to show up at your house. It can be same day or next day, and you can test it out first before buying the car. Uh, and that's something that a lot of consumers want. You know, vast majority of consumers, upwards of 85, 90% are not willing to buy a car without seeing it first. And so having that uh, test drive experience is, is really unique and differentiated. What percentage of, of cars do get sold after the test drive experience? So 80% of our sales uh, involve a test drive. Okay. Uh, normally, our conversion on a test drive to sale is in the range of um, forty to fifty-five percent. Okay, uh, it, it's dep- about it depends half. on the month. Yeah, it's it's pretty high, and it's really awesome. 
Um, now, we do offer the Carvana experience as well, which is find the car online, sight unseen, buy it, and then it, have it be shipped to you as well. So we offer that product also, um, but that's not the core part of our product. We very much expect that to grow, right? Because over time, we would expect more and more people to be willing to buy a car online, sight unseen. COVID obviously has helped with that dramatically in some ways because people are much more inclined to do that. But um, it, it's still, you know, for most people, the test drive is still important. So that's one difference from Carvana. And the second one has to do with the types of cars that we sell. Um, if you think of kind of the used car world overall, uh, Vroom is in the most expensive uh, part of the business. So Vroom's average sale price on cars last year was roughly $30,000. Uh, Carvana's next one down. Um, their average ASP kind of ranges between uh, eighteen and twenty thousand dollars, and then we're below that. Um, our average ASP is uh, about sixteen thousand dollars, and so we offer what we call um, uh, value vehicles in addition to uh, everything else. Value cars are ones that are over eight years old or over eighty thousand miles. Um, that's something that's very unique to us, and nobody in the digital ecosystem uh, offers. Most uh, of those just those go to wholesale, or uh, most people um, uh, would. Uh, you know, if you want to buy that kind of car, you have to go to like an independent dealer in your local market to do okay. it. Uh, where obviously the experience is nowhere near as good as as online. Um, and so, if you want a more kind of digital, high quality experience, you really can't get that for that type of vehicle, other than if you buy from Shift. Uh, but amazingly, actually, those cars are massively in demand. Uh, we normally sell those cars faster than all our other cars, and our front-end margin on those cars is higher than on our regular cars. Um, so the the interesting thing is that the demand for those types of vehicles is really high. It's just uh, something that most people don't want to touch uh, because you have to do more reconditioning on them. Um, so you have to have expertise in how Got to it. recondition the vehicle um, if you want to sell the kind of vehicle. So so higher margins for the value cars, but I would I would imagine also with your your high touch model of the test drives and delivering the cars to the people that eats into your margin, you know, how to, how does the margin compare on, you know, the, the test drives you do versus sight unseen, you know, purchase online? Um, yeah, there's obviously a slightly higher cost to doing the test drive fulfillment um, versus shipping the car, because when we ship the car to you, we charge you for the shipping separately. Uh, and so we don't have that kind of cost, um, you know, compared to our peers, actually, it's a little bit, uh, probably cheaper to do a test drive because um, our peers don't charge for shipping. They kind of do their own fulfillment as part of the overall product because that's the core product that they offer. Um, and so um, they have a, that extra cost to eat as well. Um, and, you know, uh, the logistics are um, obviously a cost, but that's by far not the most uh, challenging cost in, in the automotive space. Um, that is a challenging problem to solve. And you have to be really good at both technology and operations to do it really well. But if you're able to optimize um, your technology and your operations, you can actually get it done pretty cheaply. You know, an average person doing a test drive for shift is making somewhere in the range of 15 to 20 bucks an hour. Uh, and an average test drive takes roughly three hours, right? So it's not like a that expensive of a piece uh, of experience. The really more complicated operational problem at shift is reconditioning. Um, like doing reconditioning really well, doing it in the right amount of time uh, and moving the cars quickly through the process. Uh, is definitely a challenge and something that uh, you know we're always working to perfect. And you have a partner that helps on the reconditioning side, or no? We do that all ourselves. So when we started out, um, we actually uh, did uh, want to work with partners for that, and uh, that was kind of the thinking that hey, let's outsource all this. But you learn over time that if you outsource, you'll fail. Uh, it's both uh, a cost issue because if you outsource, it's more expensive, but also the quality issue. You have to do a lot more 
uh, quality control uh, on outsourced operations, and you can't quite get things right um, during the process. And so we've brought all reconditioning in-house. Uh, we still do a little bit of outsourcing when we need to have excess capacity, right? If it's like really busy, we might outsource, um, as we did, for example, this past uh, summer, because it was such a busy period. But normally, uh, steady state, we, we do all our reconditioning ourselves. Got it. So if, if I'm buying a used car, I, I go to a local dealership or maybe a CarMax and it's certified or reconditioned to some degree, or I guess the alternative is I, I go to Craigslist or something online and, and transact directly with the seller? Yeah, those are your kind of, uh, the, the traditional way of doing things is one of two, right? One is uh, by peer-to-peer um, and in, in the peer-to-peer ecosystem, buying from, um, you know, from a Craigslist seller is probably the most common uh, uh, and that's a huge part of the market. About half the cars sold used in the U.S. Uh, that are bought by consumers are sold through peer-to-peer transactions. And then the other half is through dealers. So you can go to like a local dealer, whether that's a franchise dealer or an independent dealer who only sells used um, or CarMax. Um, you know, the, those are kind of the big players, uh, big three players in the market. CarMax is the largest uh, used car dealer in, in the country, but they only have about one and a half percent market share. So it's an extremely fragmented market uh, with very, very, um, you know, uh, many very small companies in it. Uh, in, incidentally, most of these independent dealers are actually very large businesses in each district um, that they operate in. It's just that, uh, you know, there's so many of them, right? There's like 30,000 car dealerships yeah. in the U.S. Yeah. George, to, to a certain degree, you it almost feels like you offer the CarMax online, right? Uh, affordable vehicles that have been certified and reconditioned and verified and that's, um, that's the, yeah, that's very much the, a lot of what we do is what CarMax offers as well. Um, CarMax's overall pricing uh, is higher than us. Okay. And so they sell at a higher price than we do to market. They have such a strong brand that they're able to command a really high a premium price. Um, and CarMax's inventory is generally um, newer than ours. And so they don't uh, kind of dabble in the uh, more value segment of cars. They primarily focus on cars that are seven years or less in age. Okay. Um, but in terms of the experience, it, it is similar, right? Like a certified car that you can really trust um, bought in, in your local region where you operate. Why do you think they have less than one and a half percent market share? Is it distribution? It's, is it? Well, it's two a few things, right? It's, it's a massive market. Uh, this is a, the used car market is about $850 billion, um, uh, you know, on average in a given year. $850 uh, so billion? Yeah. Wow. So it's a single, it's a single largest retail market in the U.S. economy. Wow. Um, and so it's next to impossible for anyone to have a really huge portion of it because even if you're selling like 3 million cars, it's still a tiny portion uh, of, of the market. Uh, so that's number one. Number two is, um, uh, you know, the... The CarMax model, because it's all kind of store-based, right? They have to have a store operation uh, in the market that they're in. And normally they want many stores in that market, is extremely expensive to build out. Uh, so each store costs them many million dollars to build. Uh, it takes a long time to build those. And so they can only launch so many stores at a time. Lots of you know, they've been added for yeah. yeah, they've been added for like 30 plus years and they have something like 225 stores, I think. Uh, or something like that, which is obviously a lot of stores because they're by far the largest, but it's still nowhere near uh, enough to cover uh, anywhere near, you know, uh, even 10% of the market or something. Um, and so uh, that's why the digital model is so much more scalable and so much better. Uh, and why over the long term, it's such a huge opportunity, you know, for both uh, Carvana and Shift, and frankly, Vroom as well, to all grow uh, together and grow really well, right? I, I think realistically, like Shift could grow 40, 40x 
uh, or Carvana could grow 10x and we'd still be very small in the market overall. Um, and so I think uh, the opportunity to kind of capture market share here is massive because the digital model is so much more scalable than your traditional kind of store-based model. Uh, last thing I'll add here is, you know, if you think about Amazon, like what has made Amazon so successful uh, as a retailer, it's not just that they sell their own products really well. It's that they also offer products from third-party sellers, right? They have a huge portion of sellers um, that uh, that sell uh, items um, on Amazon. And I think over time, we have an opportunity to do the same thing uh, with car dealers, letting small independent dealers list on shift and then use our fulfillment approach uh, to sell those cars. Well, if you add prime delivery, then I'll sign up as a customer, George. <laughs> we kind of do, right? The test drive delivered to you, you is go. our version of prime delivery. Yeah, so, exactly. so how are you able to price the cars sight unseen, right? Like if I take my car to CarMax, they're doing, uh, I don't know, some sort of mechanic is looking at it to, you know, get an estimate of what kind of condition it's in. Um, I assume that, you know, the sellers on your platform, they're taking a variety of pictures and then you're pricing that vehicle? So we actually don't require you to do that. Uh, we, you can just give us um, your car information, um, like mileage, age, um, the VIN number. Uh, and we might ask you if you have a questions around kind of, you know, specific specifications of your particular make and model. Um, and then we have a lot of data uh, that we use um, to be able to price it kind of through uh, that information that you provided. Uh, so that is an kind of AI and a machine learning problem, which we've been working on for the last six and a half years. Um, it is proprietary to us. So we do pricing kind of all on our own uh, based on the data that we collect from you, um, our own data, plus data that we buy from third-party sources. Um, because a lot of the the pricing kind of is based on what will happen in the market, right? Uh, we need to know how other people are pricing cars in order to then know how we're going to price that car as well. Got it. Got it. You know, I was talking to a, a, a co-founder of yours, uh, Minnie. And um, a mutual friend, and she was she was asking. She said, "I should ask you, you know, what were the major shifts in the model um, over time? You know, there's there's a lot of different ways you could have expanded." Totally. Well, I remember um, one of my kind of most vivid memories, actually, in, in uh, kind of the journey of shift is we were all sitting um, in my living room in the Castro of San Francisco, um, uh, pricing cars because we had like just gotten a bunch of different cars come in our way and we had no idea what to price them on. And so we're sitting kind of looking at, um, you know, KBB, trying to use KBB to price cars. Um, that batch of cars did not do very well for shift. <laughs> uh, we, we, lost, we lost a lot of money on that. Yikes. But so, so one of the first shifts was kind of to realize, hey, we need a much better capabilities for pricing and we need to have technology to do that. Like it has to be a a core advantage, a core unique differentiator for the business. We can't rely on third parties. We have to build our own. Um, so that was definitely something we did early, early. Um, but in terms of the model shifts kind of more generally, uh, I think to start with initially, uh, my thinking, this is kind of even before any of my co-founders joined me, uh, just kind of me and Toby uh, thinking about the idea, um, was to say, hey, let's let the consumer uh, and the meaning the seller and the buyer do the transaction like they normally would today, private party, right? You'll find somebody on Craigslist, but then we come in as the neutral arbiter that helps them with pricing, that helps them with um, how much, uh, you know, how to get a loan for that car um, and that helps them with warranty as well as kind of closing a transaction. So a little bit more of an Airbnb style rather than a full stack uh, own the entire experience um, type of a model. Um, that was our initial concept. Uh, and what we found as we went out and talked to more and more consumers, um, both on the sell side and the buy side, this is again, still like 
pre-shift as existing as a business um, and more in the, in the world where uh, we're still testing and learning was that most consumers didn't really want to be selling the car themselves. They were only doing it because they had no choice. Right. They couldn't think of a better way to do it. And so people would tell us things like, you know, this is all good and dandy, but why don't you kind of sell the car yourself? <laughs> Meaning do do the sale and take the car away from me. Yeah, and so I was like, wow. <laughs> yeah, if you're like, if you're going to give me the car, it's like a crazy thing, right? Um, so that's how we got into the actual transaction business because consumers kind of pushed us in that direction. So that's one really big change that happened. George, just uh, really another, quickly, did, did you ever consider like a consignment model? Well, so that's the other big thing. So the first thing we actually started out with was consignment. Um, we would allow a consumer to um, give us the car. We would guarantee them a certain amount of money on that car. And then anything that we made above that price, we would split uh, 70% to shift, 30% to the consumer. So it allowed the consumer to kind of share in the profit that we made on the car. Uh, and that's how we scaled the business for years. Like through 2018, uh, consignment was the core part of our offering. Wow. And then what we were finding is that a ton of users um, loved it, but a lot of users wanted to use consignment, but really couldn't use it because they needed uh, the money quickly. They needed transportation uh, so, probably. If they're selling yeah, one car, they needed the money to exactly. buy a new one. Exactly. They oftentimes needed that as a kind of way to deposit, uh, to put a deposit down um, for the for the next car. And so um, we started to kind of get into the buyouts, meaning where we'd give them money up front um, from the perspective of, hey, how do we help these users that wanted money up front? Um, and eventually, you know, we what we basically found is that more consumers overall were willing to do a buyout versus consignment. And while we probably would get more consumers total if we offered both products, um, we didn't want to be in a place where we were offering two products at once. We wanted to offer just one product at a time. And so we stopped doing consignment and got into into the buyout model roughly in October or November of 2018. So uh, just under two years ago. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if in the future for more high-end vehicles like um, cars that are uh, you know 30,000 plus, uh, we still might offer uh, some form of consignment in the future because uh, those users in particular really loved uh, the consignment uh, offering because they are, you know, normally less price sensitive um, and have less of a need for money up front, um, but really love the fact that they could kind of be part of the winning, meaning if a car sold really well, they would do better. Uh, so that's uh, that's another really big change that happened uh, in, in the history of Shift. Uh, yeah. yeah, go ahead. I, I was just thinking, you know, the name Shift, Shift itself, like, does uh do the Gen Zers get that? I mean, you um, know, I I I understand. I'm 40 years old. You know, I <laughs> I learned a, a stick shift when I was young, yep. but I think the younger folks don't even know what shift in a car means. Well, we played with a lot of names early days of shift. Um, one of the concepts was like car savvy or car smart, um, etc. Like a bunch of different names that involved the car or vehicle or auto. Um, but what we found was that the best names are ones that are one word yeah, uh, and uh, kind of are able to build a brand around it. And it was actually an engineer um, friend of mine who for a while was going to join Shift as a, as a co-founder, but eventually decided not to, um, who came up with it. So you don't usually think of engineers as branding experts, uh, but this one did a really good job at, at yeah. doing that. And, you know, it's worked out really well for it's us. It's a great name. Um, yeah. Thank you. Appreciate it. Cool. So one other question on the business, I wanted to ask you about the SPAC stuff as well. Yep. But, um, you know, it's an online marketplace. You're, you're solving this extremely frustrating and time-consuming time consumer life event. But it's also a very infrequent life event or transaction, right? So, yep. totally. so you've got the unique challenge of you need to be top of mind when somebody is either buying a new car 
or selling a car ready to make that transaction. Um, you know, we've looked at a lot of businesses over the years, like the, the mattress companies, for instance. That's another very high price transaction, high value transaction, but it happens seldom. Um, so yep. how do you think about that? And how do you, I don't know, incept the users or, or the consumers just at the right time? Totally. So um, most of what we've done in terms of marketing and consumer acquisition at Shift has been around uh, kind of lower funnel. Um, so digital marketing, uh, Google, Facebook, other digital channels, SEO, SEM, et cetera. Uh, and that's really effective at capturing the customer when they're actually thinking about a vehicle purchase or a vehicle sale. What we haven't done, and that's actually a huge opportunity for Shift, is more uh, awareness and brand building, where people are aware that we exist, even if they're not in market to do something today, but will be um, later on. Um, that awareness takes time. Uh, it obviously costs money because you won't necessarily get a return for it right away. But uh, you know, over time, the return is really strong. I mentioned earlier, CarMax is able to sell actually at much higher price than an average dealer. Um, the reason they can do that is because they have such a strong brand. People know about them, even if not a lot of them have ever used um, CarMax. And so brand really helps uh, in, a, in a lot of ways. Um, so the next big kind of push for shift as a company is to uh, do a lot more brand building. Um, that's kind of one of the reasons why we raised the capital that we raised in this transaction is to be able to invest uh, dollars behind building awareness and building brand. Uh, we actually just launched uh, our first uh, brand uh, kind of ad uh, with Martin Starr, uh, formerly Guilfoyle, being the spokesman uh, for Shift. Uh, it's a, quite a funny ad. We call it littering. Um, but the, the the kind of big push for the business over the next you know two, three, four years will be to build brand in the markets we're in because we know that that will have a really big impact uh, with consumers over time. Well, hopefully going public helps with that a bit. <laughs> Obviously, I mean, being public always improves uh, the standing of a company in the consumer's mind because they kind of trust it more. So that's obviously very helpful and, and we're super excited about it. Okay. So, George, I do want to talk a bit about your your process. I'm not sure if you're public yet or not. Um, I should have looked that up. We are. Our, you are. our listing uh, date was last Thursday. So All right. Cool. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Well done. I'm sure that that was no easy effort there. But um, I, I believe you guys did use a SPAC and I'm not sure if you used the pipe or not, but... Um, you know, first, can we just talk about the decision to go with a SPAC in order to go public? Totally. Yeah, we used a SPAC and we did do a pipe. Um, you should never do a SPAC without a pipe. Okay. Um, so they're kind of intertwined. Uh, and I can talk about why in a second. But um, we um, so we uh, decided to head in the direction of a SPAC in late April or early May. Um, I don't remember the exact date when it kind of first became a top of mind topic. Um, but, you know, from there, uh, very, very quickly by the beginning of June, uh, we had a partner in terms of a sponsor that we were working with and, and had signed an LOI. And so it moved up pretty quickly. Um, the thinking here was the following, you know, initially the plan was to raise private capital this year, sometime in the spring or early summer, uh, and then um, go uh, public a year later, uh, sometime in the summer or the fall of 2021. Uh, that was kind of the lead round of private money would have been our last round and uh, you know would have been kind of the mezzanine round before the, the IPO. Uh, and that made sense for us uh, pre-COVID, but then with COVID, uh, a few things changed. One was that uh, the public markets 
uh, very much made a decision that there are winners and losers in the COVID economy, and the winners are digital e-commerce players. Uh, and so the demand for e-commerce investment opportunities jumped dramatically. Uh, number two is uh, private markets actually uh, did not uh, work as well as the public markets did in, in the months immediately after the lockdowns. Uh, and, and even to this day, like private markets actually having a harder time um, functioning at a growth stage company level versus private uh, public markets. Really, uh, and so okay. yeah, uh, and so uh, when you combine those two factors kind of together, that like demand in the public markets for e-commerce was really high, and then concurrently private markets are not working really well um, for growth stage businesses, then suddenly um, you know it made more sense to move towards going public sooner. Uh, and given that we had always been building a company towards being public uh, in, in every way, um, you know, we were very prepared for that type of a transaction. Uh, but a SPAC made a lot of sense because it allows you to move quickly um, in terms of the process. Uh, and so the risk of market kind of collapsing or things going badly in the market is much less there versus a traditional IPO. Uh, because when you decide to do an IPO, it takes many months before you actually can get to the market. Uh, number two, uh, it, it allows you to actually raise substantially more capital um, versus a traditional IPO, um, which obviously uh, for a business like us, which is more capital intensive than a software only business uh, is, is beneficial. Uh, and then thirdly, with a SPAC, you can actually talk not just about what your performance has been historically, but also what you plan to do in the future. Uh, and so it allows you to kind of market both of historicals and the future story, uh, which again, for a business like ours, which is only, you know, we're going to be seven years old in December in terms of incorporation. We've only been selling cars for a little over six years now. Um, it's beneficial to be able to not talk just about history, but also what we want to do in the long term. So is it is it the sponsors of the SPAC? I mean, you you partner up with them, you team up with them. Do they put up, what percentage of the capital do they put up as a total part of the transaction? Is it 20%? And, you know, does that, that capital hit your dilution then and, and the common stockholders? So the way um, the SPAC works is that, a sponsor, like you and I could get together and, and raise a SPAC, meaning we could establish company, file an S1, um, raise uh, money in the public market. That money sits in a trust um, and people who invest in the money get shares in return. The shares are sold at 10 bucks a share. And in addition to the shares, they also get warrants. Um, so each person will get like a, a third of a warrant or half a warrant per share. Um, which they can, you know, has additional value uh, to it in the future. Uh, and that's one of the big reasons why people invest in SPACs in the beginning uh, when SPAC shares are sold is to get the warrant as well. Uh, that money sits in a trust. It can't be touched uh, until a transaction happens. Um, then the sponsor uh, goes out and looks for um, a company to merge with. Um, they find the company, they sign an LOI with them around a price. They get out into the market in a private sense. This is all done through an NDA um, and raise a pipe where they go out to a small set of um, shareholders, you know, like a 20, 20, 30, 40 investors uh, and raise money from them for a, um, for a transaction. Uh, uh, that's called the pipe, the private in investment, the private, uh, private, uh, so public company. Um, and, uh, and so that's the next step. And, and that money comes into the public company. So it'll come into the transaction when the transaction is fully completed uh, and then you announce the deal. So when kind of SPACs announce that, hey, I'm merging with XYZ company, usually at that point, the pipe's already been done. Um, and there's a formal merger agreement that's signed between the private company and the SPAC. Then you kick off the process of engaging the SEC on the actual transaction. So you file what's called an S4 statement, and it goes through the exact same review um, that a normal S1 would go through. 
Um, S4 is just for a merger versus S1 is for an initial public offering. Um, you go through the S4 process. It takes, you know, a couple months. I think we found ours like um, uh, July 17th and we were done by uh, early uh, September. Um, and then the SPAC shareholders, like people who bought the stock uh, initially or whoever they sold the stock to, because that stock is fully tradable and so people are buying and selling it all the time. Um, so the SPAC shareholders vote on whether to approve the merger or not to approve the merger. Right. And, you know, 90% of the time these mergers are approved. That's not a problem. But in addition to that, they also get to decide whether they redeem their money or do they keep the money in the company? Right. Um, and so they don't have to stay in the company. Um, they can take their money out. If they redeem the money, money comes out, but the warrant stays with the buyer of the warrant. Um, so they still could make money on the deal, even if they redeem. Ah. Um, the pipe money stays in the company regardless, right? So let's say the initial um, IPO of the SPAC was $200 million, and then you raise the number $100 million in the pipe. And then let's see, say that of the $200 million that was initially raised, $100 million chose to redeem and $100 million chose to stay in the deal, right? In that scenario, the company go forward will get $200 million total. Um, so $100 million from the from the initial SPAC trust and $100 million from the pipe. In Shift's case, we actually had zero redemption. So not a single shareholder chose to redeem uh, in the deal. Um, so we got the full money that was in the trust, something like $152 million, uh, plus the full amount of money from the pipe which was, I think, roughly $185 million. So all the capital uh, came to shift uh, from the transaction. There was zero redemptions. Um, that's obviously like a really good transaction, meaning um, the, the investors were um, in favor of the deal in, in a strong way. Uh, but normally, you know, somewhere between a third and a half of the uh, SPAC trust uh, will redeem capital and not stay with the company once the transaction happens. Got it. Is It seems more beneficial to be an investor in the SPAC directly than in the pipe. Is that fair? Um, Well, I mean, it all depends, right? The SPAC investors themselves. You have Totally, you have optionality. Those are very like situational investors, meaning they are not people who invest in specific themes or specific types of businesses. Um, Their whole focus is to invest in SPACs to make money on that. Um, So it's kind of like a special situations uh, hedge fund type of thing. Whereas people you want in the pipe are more long-term holders, right? Because they're people who work on investing in e-commerce businesses or um, who work on investing in automotive retail businesses, who know the space that you're in really well. Those are the types of shareholders as an institutional um, shareholders that you want to keep for the long term. And so the pipe is really beneficial because you want to market to those types of investors and you want them to buy into your business uh, for the long term. Uh, ideally, what you get is a very strong amount of interest in the pipe, right? So like um, you have two or three times as much demand as what you're actually willing to take in. And then those shareholders turn around and go buy in the public market as well from the, from the hedge fund shareholders that initially bought into the SPAC yep. so that they, they, they basically replace the hedge funds with these long-term holders. Got it. And Got so it. that's one of the reasons you want to do a pipe is because it's a great way to not only raise additional capital, but also to create interest in your business um, for the long term so that you can replace these investors who are actually not meant to stay in your company. Well, it's some pricing validation. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, um, you know, SPAC's got sort of a bad reputation like 20-ish years ago. Um <laughs> What is the risk in the SPACs? And, you know, has that been addressed? Have they fundamentally changed somehow? 
over time? Well, yeah, I mean, the historical SPACs, the ones that didn't do very well, usually did not involve redemptions. Um, so they didn't have the investors in the SPAC didn't have the right to redeem, um, redeem shares. Uh, and so that obviously uh, is a very big difference um, uh, between historical and, and now. Uh, and then pipe is a more newer concept. You know, five years ago, most SPACs did not involve a pipe, whereas today, uh, almost all the SPACs that are done involve a pipe. Uh, and so they provide really good validation for the public market shareholder in the SPAC of the price in the deal, right? So the fact that you got new investors to look at the deal carefully and, and price it um, is very, very helpful and kind of make sure that the deal is not overpriced. Um, so I think SPACs are better. Now, frankly, the other thing to mention is that um, a lot of really good issues came into the market, right? So we did our deal with um, with a group, uh, uh, last name's the Cohens. Um, so it's Daniel and, and Betsy Cohen that have a family of SPACs um, that they've been sponsoring over the years. Um, they're really, really capable and very good. They have many uh, instruments out there in the market. They've done uh, four companies now that, or no, so five companies that have a DSPAC, uh, and they have a few other SPACs kind of looking for uh, for targets. Um, and then there are two other um, really uh, prominent issuers, uh, TPG and, and Gores, um, that have done a bunch of deals as well. The fact that you have these like very experienced, um, good financial players uh, like Betsy and Daniel uh, in the market uh, is really good validation uh, for the SPAC market and has been very helpful. Um, what has happened this year is that there's just a little bit too many people uh, getting into the SPAC business as far as raising capital for the SPAC. And frankly, uh, it's a little bit uh, not ideal. And the reason it's not ideal is because the SPACs are all about execution once the deal is announced. Uh, it's actually not that hard to raise the IPO money for a SPAC. Uh, what's really hard is finding the right company to merge with uh, and actually executing properly uh, on that deal during the transaction period. Uh, and so I am a little bit um, concerned that a bunch of people with virtually no experience in this market um, are raising you know, SPAC capital because I'm not certain that they will do a very good job execution-wise. Uh, uh, and then you might have, oh, people saying, oh, SPACs are not good because um, this SPAC failed or that SPAC failed. But in practice, you know, people who really know what they're doing, um, know what they're doing. It's just that there's a bunch of people who don't know what they're doing. And so sure. if I were a company looking at a SPAC option, like to do a SPAC, I would look really carefully to make sure that the sponsor group uh, has either had experience sponsoring SPACs, uh, like Betsy and Daniel have done, or involves people who have done a SPAC uh, as uh, executives, right? So, um, you know, Paul Ryan just raised a SPAC, as you know. Well, the CEO of that SPAC is somebody um, who was a president of a company that de a year ago. So, like, he actually has gone through the process, right? Um, so, Paul Ryan might have never done a SPAC, but, like, he has somebody involved in the business who knows exactly how the SPAC process works. And so, I think that SPACs that involve people who've done SPACs before, either as sponsors or as kind of um, operators, uh, are much more likely to uh, to succeed um, versus um, SPACs that kind of, uh, you know, have a bunch of um, business people coming together that haven't really done these transactions before, but are finding this to be an interesting opportunity today. Got it. I imagine you selected your your sponsor very carefully. <laughs> yeah, um, we were you know we were lucky because we um, we were the first Silicon Valley company um, to um, to do a SPAC this year. No shit. Um, and if, wow. Yeah, if not the first, then at least definitely one of the first, and then kind of open up the floodgates for everybody else uh, to to do it, which is great, and I'm really excited about it because um, I've always been you know hugely supportive of. Um, uh, kind of companies going public versus being private for too long. And so it's been really good. And so we were um, very fortunate that our sponsor has had a lot of experience. Like I mentioned, you know, Betsy and Daniel 
have uh, kind of worked on uh, five DSPACs over time uh, and have three more kind of SPACs that are looking for targets right now. So they have a lot of expertise um, in the space and that really helped us. Um, and so we are really happy with, uh, you know, the process in our in our sense. I mean, as I mentioned, like we had zero redemptions, which I think is a really good kind of outcome uh, for the business. And it tells you that uh, kind of, I think that would not have been possible without a really quality sponsor involved. For sure. Congratulations on that. Um, Thank so, you. So I assume that retail investors have access to to purchase shares of Shift at this point? Yeah. And retail investors can buy Shift. It's SFT uh, on NASDAQ. And, and obviously um, we're trading and, and anyone's welcome to, to, to buy um, the, you know, one of the things about SPACs that I really like actually is the fact that it almost democratizes the IPO process in some ways because uh, it's next to impossible for a retail investor to buy into an IPO when an IPO is being launched, right? Because it all goes to the institutional investors. Um, and then only once the deal is kind of fully out there and the stock, you know, has a big run up, um, that's when the retail investors can, can participate. Um, and so, uh, in, in versus with a SPAC, a retail investor can buy in during the SPAC process, even before the deal is announced or right as the deal is being announced, uh, and still get in at a lower price. Uh, and so that's one advantage of a SPAC. Uh, it's, it's a democratization of the go public process, which I think is really good. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta. And there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to PacWest.com to learn more. And the decision to to do a SPAC over just direct listing is is that because direct listing is is more appropriate for household names? I mean, did you yeah. did you consider so that? D- direct? I mean, there have not been that many direct listings, frankly. Like everyone talks about them, but it's actually a very small part of the uh, of the ecosystem. Um, the <clears throat> the reason um, for us uh, a direct listing did not make sense is because you can't really raise a lot of money. Uh, in a direct listing, right? And so for Shift, uh, raising capital in the transaction was really critical because uh, we are a capital intensive business. Uh, the second thing is like, I think direct listings work well for companies that have a very, very large consumer base. Um, so, you know, Spotify is a great example of that. Um, uh, and Airbnb, when they were planning on doing it pre-COVID also made a ton of sense. Uh, or alternatively, you need to have, you know, founders or a couple of shareholders who have just massive amount of capital um, and as a result of that, the company's need for capital is a lot lower. So again, for Palantir and for Asana, um, that totally makes sense, right? Given kind of who the shareholders of, that, of those companies are. Um, but for a company like Shift, uh, a direct listing would have made no sense. 
Um, I frankly don't actually understand the Silicon Valley obsession with direct listings um, that much. Uh, like I think SPACs make a ton more sense because they are a way vehicle for companies that are slightly earlier um, in the process to go public, uh, which otherwise in the current environment might have, might have stayed private long, longer, right. which is, I don't think, ideal. You know, companies used to go public a lot earlier before, but then Starbanks, Oxley and whatever has made it harder to do. But SPACs are kind of pushing in the opposite direction, actually enabling companies to go public earlier, which is good for shareholders. It's good for employees. It's good for um, the venture market in general. So it's in every way positive, I think. Uh, and SPACs are able to kind of help facilitate that. But um, that's a very different kind of proposition versus, um, you know, a direct listing, which very few companies have done. Um, but then everyone wants to talk about them as like this massive phenomenon anyway. You know, maybe a, a couple quick wrap up questions for the uh, the founders out there. Um, yeah, of course. George, you've built a company outside of the Valley and, and in the Valley. You know, what's your what are your thoughts on the future of, you know, building in the Bay Area or or not? It's a, it's a really tough question, um, but one that I've been thinking about a, t- a lot. Um, so I actually moved uh, to Silicon Valley, um, you know, five, 10 years ago now um, because I wanted to build a company here. Uh, I think Taxi Magic suffered a lot uh, from not being in the Bay Area, and I really wanted to make sure that I was here for the next company that I built. And frankly, I've massively benefited from that, right? I uh, joke sometimes that most of the money I raised wasn't in Silicon Valley, but the most important money I raised was in Silicon Valley because if I hadn't had kind of early angels in Silicon Valley and then my series A investors in Silicon Valley, I would have never been able to get to the next stage of capital, which was not here. So it's kind of like a rite of passage to go through Sand Hill Road uh, to be able to build a company. And, you know, it's so much harder to build from outside in terms of meeting investors in the pre-COVID days. Um, like uh, everyone would expect you to be here in person. So if you were based in Austin or New York or whatever, and you had to, you wanted to meet investors in in, in the Valley, then that's like flying out here, trying to set up meetings in advance, which is very difficult to do with the v, uh, VC schedules versus like if you're in San Francisco or Palo Alto, it's a half hour drive. You can meet anytime you really want. So there's a huge advantage from the capital perspective to have been here. But um, the flip side is, so the cost of living in Silicon Valley has gone out of control. It's frankly a little bit insane what it costs to live here. Uh, and the result of it is that the cost of um, uh, of uh, capital, I mean, the amount of capital you have to raise has also dramatically increased because you have to compensate for the cost of living by paying people more money. There is no way if I was studying another company today, I could pay my initial employees uh, the same amount of money as I was paying them previously. Sure. So the result is I have to raise more money. That means more dilution. <laughs> and it kind of makes like very little sense. Um, and so I think that um, as long as we are in this environment where the cost of living in the Bay Area is what it is, um, and a lot of it's been driven by the larger companies, right? Like the Facebooks of the world. And so it's not just about startups. It's the really large tech companies that are using their monopolies to pay people way too much. Um, that's driving some of this. Uh, but as long as that's happening, um, the reality is, is that I think you will need to um, think about alternatives. Uh, and so I still think there's a massive advantage to being in the Bay Area as a founder, um, but you need to be prepared to put a lot of your team somewhere else. Uh, and so I think a founding team being in San Francisco or, Bay, or South, South Bay makes a ton of sense, but most of your operating team has to be somewhere else because the costs just don't make any sense. And then from there, you know, the next thing is like, do the founders have to be here or not? And 
people are getting so used to operating in this more decentralized manner um, that over time, I think people will become more and more used to investing in founders um, that are not based in the Bay Area. One of the biggest reasons why VCs choose to not invest in founders that are not in San Francisco is that they have to then travel (laughs) to meet with those founders for board meetings and other things. And that's just too complicated uh, and eats up too much time. But as you know, Zoom and you know, video connectivity uh, is something that becomes more and more standard. I'm guessing you'll see VCs investing more in founders not based here because more board meetings will take place over video. Now, is that ideal? Who knows? I mean, I think that personal connections are really, really critical. Um, and you know, frankly, my personal direct relationship with, with my initial investors have been instrumental in helping me get through um, shifts uh, kind of early and difficult days. But I think that we'll see that more and more. Uh, And so I think that uh, you will end up seeing more places become kind of prominent from the founding perspective versus what you've seen before um, because of this kind of pandemic environment that we have been in. And frankly, that's a good thing, right? Because the concentration of talent and wealth and money in the Bay Area isn't great for the Bay Area. And it's definitely not great for the rest of the country because um, it creates, you know, a division that's not really that, that good. And so I think having more uh, kind of founding stories in the middle of the country will be really good. Yeah. And you, you, you mentioned in there to pick your VC partners wisely. Is there one piece of advice that you would give to early stage founders about selection of their investment partners? Um, I mean, I said this publicly in a post I did the day that Shift um, was listed publicly uh, last week that, you know, I would not have a company today had it not been for Emily Melton and Manish Patel, who are my Series A investors from um, Threshold Ventures and Highland Capital, respectively. Uh, and, you know, I if I had thought of kind of famous Series A VCs I wanted to take money from uh, seven, eight years ago, I might not have thought of either Emily and Manish because um, they're not very PR focused and they're not in the news that much. Um, and plus this was eight years ago, so they were even in the news even less. Um, but, uh, you know, they have been amazing, amazing partners and um, the company would not have survived with the, without their help, whether it had been kind of thinking through how to solve some of the difficult challenges we faced from the product perspective or the team perspective or capital perspective. And so I'm like inherently massively grateful for what they've done. Uh, for us and for me. Um, and, you know, early uh, process of kind of finding a partner is almost like speed dating, right? Because you do it so, so fast uh, in the early days. And so my advice is ignore uh, firm names uh, and ignore the very famous um, kind of people. Yes, there are some famous uh, VCs who are really great Series A investors. Uh, Bill Gurley, who we talked about, is an example of that. But actually, some of the best VCs don't spend their time uh, attending the the kind of talk talk show, let's call it a circus, right? <laughs> Meaning going to uh, going to events. Uh, they're actually just kind of there behind the scenes doing really great work. Uh, and so spend time figuring out who those people are. Uh, and the partner that you work with is what really matters the most, right? So make sure that you have a really really good connection with that specific individual, uh, because everyone's going to be your friend when things are great. What really matters is who's going to be your friend when things are bad. Uh, and that's why, like, for me, I'm so, so passionately grateful to Emily and Manish because they've been with me through good times and they've been with me through really hard times. And they've been more supportive of me in hard times than in, than in good times, which is what you really want from your uh, VC partner. For sure. And then I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, but, um, you know, being an, an openly gay man building a tech company and an immigrant as well, 
Um, I'm not sure at what age you came to the States, but do you think that presented more a more difficult path to success? It's a really good question. And, and thanks for asking. Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, kind of a, a unicorn in some ways. Uh, we were looking at how many gay founders had taken companies public uh, and there's not a lot of us uh, for better or for worse. Um, uh, and even fewer uh, CEOs. Look, I have never had that be an issue for me in Silicon Valley. Um, it's been actually an incredible um, privilege that it's never come up as an issue. Uh, and I've never felt, you know, discriminated against or treated in a different way because I'm gay. To be honest, actually, everyone has been insanely supportive of me in that way uh, from, from a perspective of my investors and colleagues and employees and partners. Um, and, you know, when my husband and I uh, started to, to work on having children um, two and a half years ago now, like everyone has been an incredible um, supporter through that process. You know, gay men having kids is a pretty time consuming and difficult process because it, it involves so many people and uh, and so much science as well as love. Um, and it's been really, really awesome to have everyone's support. So I've not felt that. Obviously, like I think my experience is probably more um, unique uh, than other people um, because, uh, you know, a lot of people do go through um, discriminatory experiences in that way. And that's very unfortunate. Uh, we're probably lucky because we're in the Bay Area and here, you know, people are very, very respectful um, of this versus other parts of the country. Though that said, you know, the awesome thing about America is that um, today, you know, support for gay marriage is like at 70 plus percent, um, which is a record high, obviously. Um, when I remember days when I first moved to the U.S. when I was um, 14, uh, you know, and even in my 20s when that number was kind of in the 20s and 30 percent range. And so the change that we've witnessed vis-a-vis -vis gay rights and, um, you know, our ability to have normal lives uh, over the last two decades has been incredible. Uh, I think it actually speaks amazing things about this country and, and our constitutional system that that's possible. Uh, and so to me, it's an awesome thing um, that that's going to happen, frankly. And uh, I've been very, very lucky because I've never had uh, problems from that. But obviously, that's not uh, you know, that's not an experience for, from, for everyone. On the immigrant side, you know, I, I do want to mention that as well. Like, uh, immigrants have been amazing founders. Um, you know, you, we'd have no Google, no SpaceX, no Tesla um, without immigration. And so yeah. I think it's a huge advantage uh, to, to America. Uh, and in my particular case, right, I remember one of my co-founders telling me um, early on, he's like, you know, uh, for us, um, immigration is going to be a competitive advantage. And what he meant by that is that I knew immigration rules really well because I had gone through so many of them myself. And I was a lot less nervous about hiring um, immigrants. So I was much more okay hiring people on H-1B visas or sponsoring people for visas or green cards or whatnot. Um, and it has proven to be a massive advantage because we brought on board great talent that otherwise we might not have been able to hire uh, had we been hesitant to, to do some of the immigration-related things that we needed to do. Um, and so um, from, for us, it's been a big advantage. Uh, I don't think the government makes it easy. And in this environment in particular, it makes it very, very difficult. I mean, uh, the fact that there are people on H-1B visas right now that can't have those visas renewed, for example, because uh, the government's trying to prevent that from happening is kind of ridiculous because we're really messing with people's lives and we're messing with companies, right, as well. So it's, it's really unfortunate, really sad. Uh, and that is something that I don't think people fully appreciate, the extent to which um, immigration 
uh, has been a massive competitive advantage to the U.S. Uh, for you know 200 plus years, but especially today uh, on the technology side. Uh, and I say this right by as like a fairly conservative person uh, who very much believes in the rule of law uh, and totally understands why. Uh, people have concerns about it, but it's really, really critical to distinguish kind of, you know, legal immigration from everything else and, and appreciate the benefits that uh, it adds to our economy and our entrepreneurial spirit. Well, let's hope for the future of, of tech and, and what we do for a living that, uh, you know, those uh, those laws and, and, and whatnot end up on the right side and encouraging more immigration in the future. But um, George, you know, Ed, thank you so much for spending the time here today. You're a man of firsts in, in many respects. And, it, you know, you've, you've learned a lot of lessons over the years and it's clear to me that you've put them to good use. So you're an inspiration to me and many in the audience. And I appreciate you spending the time today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. All right, that'll wrap up today's interview. If you enjoyed the episode or a previous one, let the guest know about it. Share your thoughts on social or shoot them an email. Let them know what particularly resonated with you. I can't tell you how much I appreciate that some of the smartest folks in venture are willing to take the time and share their insights with us. If you feel the same, a compliment goes a long way. Okay, that's a wrap for today. Until next time, remember to over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks so much for listening.